Real Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Welcome to Real Cuff, and I'm excited tonight because we have a Jew from Brooklyn named Muddle Ballastin. And he is here to share his testimony, and I heard his testimony on another interview, and it was so clear the way he explained things. I told, I told my wife, Julie, who, by the way, is on the air tonight, I said, Hello. Julie, I've, I've got to interview this guy because it just kind of opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that I didn't understand. So, Muddle, we're so glad to have you on tonight. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Todd and Julie, and glad that I could join with your listeners as well to share a little bit about my story. Wonderful. Well, we've only got a you know a short amount of time, so I figure let's let you get started, and you can tell us your testimony and see where it goes from there. Well, excellent. Um, just to give a sense of context, um, you know, when, when I amassed for the short uh, Reader's Digest version, I simply say to people, I'm a Jew from Brooklyn. Uh, but there are lots of famous Jews from Brooklyn, and I'm not one of those famous Jews, but people like Barbara Streisand and a whole host of uh, Jewish people that you know in the worlds of literature and entertainment are uh, Jewish people who were born in Brooklyn, because at one time, uh, the Jewish community in Brooklyn was probably the most densely packed Jewish community um, of the 20th century. And so it is uh, a place, uh, and I was born in a place in time, where literally growing up, I imagined that we were the majority. Uh, it wasn't until I was about 10 or 11 that I came to understand that we as Jews were not the majority in the world. But just to take it back a couple of generations, all four of my grandparents were born into Orthodox Jewish homes in Jewish villages in Eastern Europe, all four of them in the 1890s. And uh, my uh, father's side of the family are from Ukraine and uh, Poland, and my mother's side from Poland and Russia and the Belarus area. And so it was very typically, these were towns and villages, much like you see in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, that almost sounds like um, an exaggeration, but literally it, it truly was. My grandmother's village of Felstein in the Ukraine um, later became famous because it was very sadly the site of a, a big pogrom. Uh, and you see a pogrom staged in that movie as well. And so... Obviously, with those sorts of violent persecutions, my uh, grandparents wanted to leave. And uh, of all four of my grandparents, we know the most about my father's mother, whose name was Sarah Siegel. And we know the most about her because ultimately the village that she was in became famous because it was the site of a pogrom. So at the age of about 15 or so, her parents put her on a train, and they, they eventually got her onto a steamship crossing the Atlantic, where she wound up uh, in New York, where her older brother was already located. He had come over a couple of years earlier. 
and uh, all four of my other grandparents have similar sorts of stories. And uh, they came to America, came particularly to Brooklyn. And my uh, grandfather, Isidore uh, Ballastin, was your typical uh, turn-of-the-century Jewish tailor. Uh, that's literally what he was. He, he owned, um, well, he started off in a sweatshop, like so many other uh, Yidden, so many other Jews did at the turn of the century. And he uh, came up in that the garment industry, uh, surrounded by Jewish people, eventually uh, did well for himself, became a cutter, uh, and had responsibilities, and eventually opened up a small tailor shop in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And so ultimately they married. They had uh, three children. My father, Samuel, is the youngest, uh, Samuel Aaron uh, Balliston is my fa- was my father's name. He was the youngest of the three children, and uh, I grew up in an atmosphere where it was clearly understood that we were to be proud of our Jewish identity, that it was something that was important, and yet uh, all my family basically followed the same sort of pathway that so many other Jewish families who came to America had followed, and that was that the first generation here, uh, the ones who came over at about the turn of the century, they were the most orthodox. They were the most religious. They had come from very traditional orthodox Jewish backgrounds in Europe. But then, as often happened, the next generation was a little less religious because they had uh, their their kind of horizons were opened up in America, and they got to uh, take partake of a, a world that was not only orthodox Jewish. So as a result of that, my, my, grand, my, my father became the first person in his family to graduate from college. Um, and so the wider world was open to him, and yet I remember many gatherings, warm gatherings in the home of my aunt and uncle, where we would all assemble and have uh, very traditional Ashkenaz Jewish foods. Ashkenaz is the, is the, uh, the name for Eastern European uh, uh, Jewish people, and all four of my grandparents were Ashkenaz uh, Jewish people from Eastern Europe. And so it was a very warm uh, sort of way to grow up, but at the same time, my father was very much a free thinker. And so... Um, as I was coming up in the 60s and 70s, he said, well, um, this is ultimately what you believe is for you to decide. He wasn't going to force this upon me, but he did send me to Jewish school. Um, so after public school, two days a week after I went to public school in Brooklyn, you'd uh, go down the street and there was a small Jewish school. And that's where I received the Jewish education um, in this after-school release time that was common in New York City back in the 1960s. Well, when the 1970s hit, the late 1970s, uh, we, we, we know that there, were, there was a whole uh, churning and, and movement amongst uh, young people in this country. The whole uh, hippie movement had come and gone and the revolution was not televised and did not come. And so people sought out spiritual answers. Uh, it, it would seem clear that uh, the established world of politics was really not going to move all that much. And so people looked inward, they looked towards spirituality. And as a result, by the late 1970s, probably um, even though Jewish people were only 3% 
of the population of America by the late 1970s, about 30% of the young people in the cults were Jewish. And so I watched with a little bit of amazement while friends of mine with names like Moskowitz and Goldberg uh, ran off to New York City, which I, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, you just hop on the subway. And there in Manhattan were meetings and, and uh, different groups for, that had uh, congealed around all these different uh, cults and religious figures. There was uh, Guru Maharishi Ji, who was very popular at the time. And so I had a friend by the name of Moskowitz who became a, a disciple of his, and he would drag me to these Hindu-style meetings. And what they told me there was that if you want to know the truth of the universe, all you need to do is dress in white, you have to shave your head, and you have to face India when you pray, you have to pray in Sanskrit, their, their language, and you have to become a vegetarian. And if you do all those outward cultural things, you'll know the truth of the universe. And there were a significant number of young Jewish people in their early 20s who were there. Now, on the other hand, turning this around 180 degrees, I had other friends, Jewish friends, who I grew up in that same neighborhood with, and they went in the opposite direction. They became Orthodox Jewish, while we had been raised kind of middle-of-the-road Jewish, they weren't satisfied with that, and they joined the burgeoning and, and growing uh, Lubavitch Hasidic movement, which was in the next neighborhood over. Their, their headquarters and seminary was just a couple of miles from my house. And I had some friends who went that way, and they dragged me to those meetings. And here's what they told me at those meetings, that if you want to know the truth of the universe, here's what you need to do. You need to dress all in black. You need to face Jerusalem when you pray. You need to pray in Hebrew. You need to wear, you need to, uh, to you know, dress in black and eat only kosher foods. And you have to grow this nice long beard. And if you do all those outward cultural things, you'll know the truth of the universe. Well, so I've got these two different groups of people telling me the exact opposite thing to do outwardly and both assuring me that I would know the truth of the universe if I just followed this certain set of cultures. And it seemed at that point that kind of the, the light went on. I said to myself, you know, if there is a God out there who could be known, then he should be able to be known no matter what direction I face, no matter what human language I pray in, no matter how I dressed, because he's God. And uh, at that point, while all these competing claims were interesting, I had just about despaired of finding if any one of them was true, when I finally admitted something to myself. I admitted to myself the one thing I had dared not investigate amongst all the different gurus and cults and isms and uh, various forms of Orthodox Judaism. The one thing I dared not check into were the claims of Jesus. And the reason was very simple. You know, growing up in a traditional Jewish home, I had the words of my grandfather ringing in my ears where he had told me that he was beaten up on Monday by people who had gone to church on Sunday. And that was in the area of Europe in which he lived. There were some large false churches that 
had anti-Semitism, violent anti-Semitism, as part of their tradition. And so that was my grandfather's very negative experience with people who claimed to believe in Jesus. And that's why initially I said, well, that's obviously I can't go in that direction. And then growing up in Brooklyn, although our immediate neighborhood was very Jewish, the next neighborhood over was Italian Catholic. So the only people I knew who believed in Jesus were Italian Catholic friends, kids in the, kids in the public school. And so I said to myself, well, listen, I'm, I'm not Italian, so I, I guess I'm not allowed to believe in Jesus. And, uh, and then someone said, no, but Jesus was a Jew. And that, that phrase kind of rang around and, and bounced around in my head for a couple of years until I finally said, you know, I've got to settle this and find out about this Jesus person, because anything I've ever heard about what he said was very attractive. It was very uplifting. There was nothing I could object to. And so I said, rather than go to to people who are going to tell me about him, I'm going to try to find something that he actually said. And so I said, I guess I should you know, read that Christian Bible that my grandfather warned me not, never to touch. He said, uh, you know, it's, it's a horrible book. It was written by people who persecuted us. And yet I had other people who were telling me that it was written by Jews. So I went uh, to find a New Testament and uh, went to the Brooklyn Public Library and pulled a Bible off the shelf, a full Bible, and broke it into the place where the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Bible, ends there and to the, the first page of the New Testament. And I really had no idea what to, I was kind of trembling, I was kind of scared, thinking that it's going to be like, like really like an anti-Jewish diatribe of some sort, like my grandfather had warned me about. And so I opened to the very first page of this New Testament, to the first book, the book of Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse in the New Testament, says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, uh, three people are mentioned, (laughs) and they're all Jewish. There's Jesus, there's David, and there's Abraham. And as I continued to read into the rest of Matthew, it became clear that I was reading a Jewish story that took place in the Jewish province of Judea 2,000 years ago. Uh, It was written about a Jewish boy by the name of Yeshua who was born into a Jewish village, Bethlehem, still there today, although it's no longer Jewish. It was totally Jewish 2,000 years ago. And uh, he grew up in a Jewish home. Um, As I continued to read and find out more about the New Testament, I learned that he went to synagogue regularly. In Luke chapter 4, we see him walking into the synagogue that he was raised in, and he does something very Jewish. He is given an aliyah. Uh, The word aliyah literally means to go up. Uh, for, For any listeners who are Jewish, you know that it's a great honor to be given an aliyah. It means you go up and you read from the Torah, and you're, you're chanting the, the bruchah of the Torah, or you might, you might, like with a bar mitzvah boy, you actually are chanting the, the Parsha B'Shavua, the portion of the week, and you're, you're chanting it in, in Hebrew. 
And so in Luke chapter 4, we have a very Jewish scene where Yeshua, this, this nice Jewish boy, walks into a synagogue, into a shul, as we say in Yiddish, in uh, the town in which he had been brought up, brought up, Nazareth, which was Jewish at that time. And he was given an aliyah. And he, in this portion, he opens up, up to the what we, we call in Hebrew the haftarah portion, the, the portion from the prophets. And he finds what was written in the book of Isaiah, uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me. And the word anointed there is the Hebrew word for Mashiach. It's the word for Messiah. He's anointed me to preach good news and, and release to the captives. And he closed the scroll, and he said to them, Today this verse has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so he's directly claiming to be Moshiach, claiming to be the Messiah. And as I read, there was nothing about him that would disprove that claim. Ultimately, I wanted to find more. I wanted to find Jewish people who believed this, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So eventually I made some phone calls and found um, a group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, a Messianic fellowship, where they believed that Yeshua was Mashiach, that he was the Messiah. And so after uh, challenging them, because I didn't believe all that they were saying initially, I wasn't some, uh, you know, some shemagegi that uh, fell off the, the Kanish truck, uh, yes, you know, yesterday. And I said, no, you got to prove it. What's this? What's this Trinity business? What's this? This three in one? How does that work? And rather than turning to the New Testament, they actually turned to the Jewish Bible, and showed me about the very clear concept in the Hebrew of the plurality of God in the Jewish Bible. And it was very clear. Finally, um, it, it, there was, it was super clear that if Yeshua, if Jesus was not the Messiah, then there could never be a Messiah. He was the only one who met all of the requirements for the initial appearance of, of Messiah. And so I prayed to receive him as Messiah. I did not stop being Jewish on that day. <laughs> I felt just as Jewish the next day because I was just as Jewish. Because when a Jew accepts the Jewish Messiah, how in the world can anyone think that you're no longer Jewish? The issue is now was atonement, that there was a need for atonement. So the question ultimately is that the Bible says that there needs to be atonement and that the, the atonement would ultimately come through Messiah. And the more I have studied, especially in recent years, the more I've come to see that Yeshua is that Messiah. Sure, it's a controversial issue. I well understand that. It's an issue that certain parts of our Jewish community reject. However, there are increasing numbers of our own Jewish people who are at least embracing Yeshua, Jesus, as a first-century Jewish rabbi. They're recognizing his place within historic Judaism, and they don't feel the need to kind of hold him at arm's distance. And so I think there's been some good progress in that. In recent years, it's been my privilege at various times to lead a congregation of Jewish people who are believers in Yeshua, and more recently to do some teaching um, on this subject. So, Todd, um, it's, a, it's something that is controversial, and it's something that uh, not everyone will agree with, 
But that right now, in the United States, there are almost a quarter million of us, a quarter million Jewish people, Messianic Jews, who believe wow. Yeshua is the Messiah, and we are proud of our Jewish identity and proud to name Yeshua as our Messiah. That is fantastic. Now, I heard you talk about, you know, your father on an interview. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about about uh, what happened there? Sure. My, my father uh, was, again, the first person in his family who went to university. He graduated from college and uh, worked his way through college, got scholarships, did very well. And um, he was in his youth. Uh, this is not something I've, I've generally said too much about. Ultimately, I'll write about it. But in his youth, he was very much um, like so many other young Jewish people growing up in the 1940s and 50s. He became enamored with socialism as the cure-all for all of the inequities, the unfairness in the world. And a lot of young Jewish people imagined for a, a couple of generations back then that uh, socialism would be the cure-all to cure uh, racial injustice, to cure economic injustice, all of these concerns that were very real and concerns which they had. And so my father became very involved with that movement of socialism in the uh, uh, 1950s and imagined that that was going to be the cure-all for the human race. But then uh, sometime by the mid-60s into the 70s, he became very disillusioned when the reports started filtering out of the Soviet Union about what actually had gone on there during the, the 1950s and 40s, 50s and 60s and what Stalin had done in order to uh, get the country to run. And he became very discouraged because he saw that what communism and socialism had done was simply to replace one dictator, in this case the Tsar, with another dictator, <laughs> and uh, whoever it was, Stalin or Khrushchev later on. And he was crestfallen because what he thought was going to be the cure-all for the human race, everyone would just kind of share, was broken in pieces. And it was at that time that he started to do some thinking in his own mind, saying, what is it that causes the human race to self-destruct? What is it that um, within ourselves causes us to not make a simple thing like a, an economic, a shared economic system, why can't it work? And those were the things he was pondering when he gave me the green light to, to, that I didn't have to follow a traditional Jewish path, that I could um, investigate all these things for myself. And so when I came to uh, faith that Yeshua, that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, at, on one hand, even though he was open-minded, I knew that he would see that as a threat, and so I did not reveal it. I did not tell him right away, because there are a lot of cults in you know in America at that time. This is this is the late 1970s, you know, 78, 79, 80. A lot of cults in America, and he was very concerned about that, about me. Uh, joining one of those. And at the time, I was working in the dental industry. I was making crowns and bridges and uh, working with dentists to fill prescriptions. 
And so I had a good position, and he uh, was proud of me. And so I did not want to upset that apple cart. But after about six months, I finally told him uh, that I had come to faith that Yeshua, that Jesus, was the Messiah. And immediately he was very concerned. Uh, he, was, uh, uh, he thought I had joined the cult, and he said, okay, well, you've joined the cult now. Where will they be moving you? Have they cleaned out your bank account? And will I ever see you again? <laughs> this is what he said to me. I was about 22 at the time. And I said, no, Pop, they haven't uh, asked me for a penny. They, uh, no, I'm not going anyplace. I'm staying right here in the apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> we had a, you know, a nice apartment in Brooklyn. I said, no, I'm not going anywhere. And I'm staying, I'm continuing to work at the dental laboratory. Later on, he, he told me, a couple year, year or two later, that he did not believe me, that he thought I'd be gone one day. But, no, I continued to be there. So a few months later, he said, well, let me read one of the books from your cult. And so I gave him um, a book that had just come out that was written by a Jewish believer, and it's simply entitled, Jesus Was a Jew. And its author is Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and Arnold is a Jewish huh. believer. And so um, he read that book, read another book, and ultimately my father also came to faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And so that was about two or three years after I did. And so my father uh, came to that same faith. My mother, also Jewish, um, had died when I was quite young. Uh, she had died when I was uh, before the age, I reached the age of ten, and so um, that was not an issue. But my mother was certainly a person who was interested in spiritual things. And later on, after my father came to faith, he had told me something that I had not heard before, and that was that my mother would often had read the New Testament um, as a young person; that she was very interested in that. And so wow. my father did come to faith. So maybe uh, maybe she knew more than she said. That could very possibly be true. Yay. Well, do you want to, where do you want to go from here? Do you want to share more about what you're doing now? Uh, I, I see you've got a lot of teachings that you do. Sure. Well, just, just a, a short um, summary of some of the things I'm involved in now. Don't want to make it sound like a commercial. Don't need to do that. But just want to be an encouragement to, to people. And that's simply to say that the idea that one can be Jewish and believe in Jesus is something that is thoroughly scriptural. It, it, it dovetails and it jogs very clearly with a traditional um, view of the New Testament, Again, it's not the possession of any one church, but all those who hold to a literal understanding of Scripture, like is done in so many Bible churches and churches of that type, where they hold the Scriptures literally. Uh, what I've been doing in the last couple of years has been doing a lot of guest speaking in churches of that sort. For about 17 years, it was my privilege to serve either as Messianic rabbi or as associate Messianic rabbi of a Messianic Jewish congregation in northern New Jersey. Did that for 17 years and led a congregation, uh, officiated at weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs. 
and uh, a lot of joyous occasions, uh, officiated Passover, Seders, and uh, all the traditional Jewish holy days. And about two years ago, shifted out of that, uh, and um, still in the same area, though. That congregation is, is currently being led by someone else. But in the last two years, I've, uh, for years I had turned down all of the, the requests to, to speak and to travel in various places because I had this standing weekend commitment at our congregation. So in the last two years, I've had a lot of opportunity to speak in various places. Um, an association of churches in Japan uh, flew me over there, and I did um, an eight-day uh, conference in various cities in Japan, uh, took the train all around Japan speaking to large groups of folks uh, with a translator, uh, been out in a number of places around the U.S., made a number of videos that if you just Google my name, Muttle Balliston, you'll you'll find my website very easily, and you'll find some videos that can be viewed online, and a whole other set of teaching instructional DVDs that are issued through the the ministry that I collaborate with each summer, and that's Ariel Ministries, A-R-I-E-L. So at ariel.org, uh, they have a wonderful set of uh, teaching DVDs, uh, and some are by myself, and some are by the man who was my original Bible teacher, Dr. Arnold Furchtenbaum. So some good ways for your listeners to continue to, to educate themselves on the Jewish roots of faith in Jesus and the fact that they, as Gentile believers, uh, that they are not in, se- in a second-class citizenship sort of status, but that God genuinely values every believer equally. Jews and non-Jews are equally valued in the heart of God. But at the same time, Gentile believers can enrich their understanding of the New Testament by simply recognizing and embracing its Jewish context. And that's available to everyone. Well, that's very good. One, one of the things that we will do, though, is we will definitely attach your information on because we want people to be able to, you know, come back and support your ministry and everything else. And, uh, and there's some of the, the YouTube videos I watched. I will attach those on, too, because I, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, uh, your teaching really made it easy to understand and, and made it clear. Well, I appreciate hearing that. Uh, that's all I want to do. I'm not some fancy-schmancy Bible teacher. I don't have big hair. <laughs> I don't have a fancy car. Uh, but God has simply called me to explain some of the, uh, the basic concepts of Scripture uh, that are Jewish concepts and explain them in a way that all can understand. They are there for everyone. You don't have to be a scholar. But having an understanding of the Jewish context means that you'll have the same understanding as the apostles did. Uh, I realize we're 2,000 years later, and we're, we're in a different continent, and so sometimes it, it becomes uh, difficult to try to get at the original meaning, but it really helps to understand that if you recognize and embrace the fact that Jesus was a Jew. And yet, he is equally the Savior for Jew and non-Jew equally. And that I truly believe that in my heart. Uh, Jewish believers are not any more special or not any more valued in the heart of God. But at the same time, 
Oftentimes, Jewish believers have an understanding of the original Jewish context of the New Testament, um, even though it's, you know, people think of it as a Christian book, but all of the main characters there, they're all Jews. And what Bible were they reading in the New Testament? The only Bible that existed, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. So your listeners can really, I believe, value uh, and, and take away value from this. Uh, it is a, a, a teaching that is not going to be in opposition to anything that any good Bible-believing church is teaching. Our, our teaching is a conservative uh, evangelical church teaching uh, because it takes the scriptures literally. Um, and there are many folks in the Jewish Roots Movement uh, who also value it as well. And so we're happy to provide those videos, especially the DVD sets. Most of my teaching can be found on the, the sets of DVDs that are offered on the ariel.org website and on many different subjects, particularly Jewish history and how Jewish and Christian history really are intertwined. So hopefully that will well, be a help to your listeners. Yeah, one of the things, too, you know, with, with everything going on in the world and a lot of church studying revelations, it, the more they know about the Jewish culture, the more they can understand a lot of stuff that's written in revelations. Yeah, a lot of it is uh, presupposes, at the very least, that you have already read Ezekiel and Daniel uh, and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, because those uh, prophetic books form the basis, form the foundation for what goes on in Revelation. There are uh, areas of Revelation, and there are things going on in the world today that are mysteries and enigmas to people because they don't recognize the connection of the Jewish people to the land. Even, even when you watch the evening news and watch all the upset in the Middle East today, um, that upset is there because we have two opposing worldviews. We have a worldview based on Scripture, where the Jewish people are in their own land, and a worldview based on an entirely secular reasoning, which wants to throw the Jewish people out of the land. And those two views are diametrically opposed, and it's only when you ignore the scriptures that you can possibly imagine that, that the, the people of Israel don't belong in the land of Israel. And so even modern history, the history we see on the evening news, has, uh, we're taught so much about that when we understand the Jewish scriptures, and even when we look to Israel today, while the, the country of Israel today is not the, the eventual Israel of the millennium, that's a, a redeemed nation that is still yet to come, what we're seeing in Israel today is the assembling of all of the players that have to be there for the events of the last days to transpire. Ours is the first generation this, this generation since the establishment of the state in 1948, we are the first generation to have actually seen the assembling of all of the characters that Scripture speaks of as the Jewish people are regathered. And the gathering is currently in unbelief, just as Scripture said would happen. And uh, the gathering ultimately will result in the return of the Messiah. And at his return... The book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12 and chapter 14, 
says very clearly, every eye will look upon him. Uh, they who pierced him will behold him. They will recognize him and mourn as one mourns for an only begotten son. So Yeshua Messiah is coming back. The Messiah is of Israel is coming back to the land of Israel, and the people of Israel will recognize him and will accept him in that day yet to come. Beautiful. Well, amen. Well, Muddle, how about you pray over the audience, and then, uh, you know, we would love to have you come back again and do some teaching. Sure, that, that, that's very doable. I'd be happy to do that. We'll have to set that up. But I'm very glad for the opportunity to, to be introduced to the folks who are listening in um, to this broadcast and uh, appreciate the fact that you're holding forth the scriptures. And, uh, you know, for those of us who value the authority of the scriptures, we need to be supportive of one another and not allow, you know, we shouldn't be majoring on the minors. Um, I'm sure if we talked long enough, we'd find some things that we don't agree on, favorite colors, favorite songs, <laughs> you know, what to, wear, what to wear when you go to congregation. But those things are uh, really very insignificant when compared to the main truths of Scripture, that the Messiah has come, that his name is Yeshua, or as we say in English, uh, Jesus, and that all peoples, Jew and Gentile, uh, need to recognize that there is only that one means of atonement by which one can have one's sins atoned for. We go into synagogue every uh, year on Yom Kippur. We pray, we daven. I remember watching my grandfather daven for over an hour, praying that God would forgive sin. He would fast all day. And now we've come to understand that the Jewish Bible had always promised that the Messiah would come ultimately to be the final atonement and the only one by which we can have our sins actually taken away and not just merely covered over. And so that's, that's our goal. So I appreciate the fact that uh, in the little corner that God has assigned to you that you're, you're being faithful in that. So I appreciate that. Now, if, should I pray now? That'd be great. Okay, well, why don't we go and then ask God's uh, leading and direction on your ministry and on, on your listeners. Let's pray then. Our God, we, we praise you, for you are the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you're also the God of all peoples who call upon you. Our God, we thank you that so long ago in the Torah, you promised to send to us the Messiah, that promise was kept, just as the prophets had foretold. And in the fullness of time, Messiah Yeshua was born in that Jewish village. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that when we come to trust in Mashiach, he takes our sin as far as east is from the west, so far does he take our sin away. Lord God, we thank you for that precious truth. We thank you for each one who's listening in today. Oh, Lord God, we, we know that people listening in from all kinds of backgrounds, there are some who have walked um, in the path of faith for many, many years. And we understand there are probably those listening in who are not even sure about these things, who have yet to make a decision. And we would simply ask that you would impress upon their hearts 
their need for atonement, their need for a Savior. And we would be so bold as to ask that you would give them no rest until they've made peace with you, for whom to know uh, the Prince of Peace. So, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we, we thank you for Todd and Julie and, and their faithfulness over the years in, in bringing forward this ministry. We thank you for the people they've touched over the years. Just pray that you give them wisdom um, as they continue on seeking to, to minister to those to whom you've called them. So, Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity. And we ask your protection over Eretz Yisrael, over the, the land and the people of Israel, and pray that many, many more of our own Jewish people will come speedily. Speedily in our days they will come to recognize Mashiach Yeshua. And it's in the name of Messiah Yeshua, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, that we pray, Amen and Amen. 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 We agree. We agree. Wonderful. Well, folks, well, thank, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Well, thank okay. you, Muddle. And if if you would just hang on for a minute, uh, we'll talk to you as soon as we get off the air here. But okay. I want to thank the uh, audience for listening tonight, and I hope you get a lot out of this. That's a wrap.